Well, let me pray uh, before we look at Psalm 42, and I'm going to pray uh, the words of Psalm 25, which is a psalm that we looked at uh, in uh, morning church a few weeks ago. Let me pray in light of Psalm 25. Father, make your ways known to us. Teach us your paths. Guide us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation, and we wait all day long for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, I don't know if you've seen the American TV series, uh, The West Wing. It's relatively old. Who's actually seen it? A few hands. Not too bad. I was expecting maybe more of you hadn't seen it because it's, it's ran from like 1999 to 2006, a while ago, and it was hugely popular. It's, uh, it's all about American politics and uh, the presidential election, if that floats your boat, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there was a time about 10 years ago, so maybe b- before some of your time, but there was a time about 10 years ago that if you weren't into board games and if you weren't watching The West Wing, then you weren't really a Christian. Uh, if you were a Christian, you played board games. That's what you did. And you watched the West Wing. That's what you did, uh, at least in our Sydney circles. And that's a problem for me because I'm not a fan of board games. If you invite me to your house for Christian board games, I'll politely say yes because I'm a nice guy, uh, but uh, I won't like it all that much. And I've never seen the West Wing. I've always refused. It's this weird Christian thing that everyone's enforced everyone to watch it. But uh, recently, my wife Emily and I, we caved. Uh, after years and years of uh, people pestering us to watch this American TV show that's very proud American called The West Wing, we gave in and uh, we were looking for some summer watching and so we watched it and uh, some might say we're finally converted. But I tell you this because uh, two weeks ago we watched one of the episodes that's quoted as the most powerful scene from the whole drama of The West Wing. And uh, in this episode, uh, spoiler alert, but you've had 20 years, so bad luck. Uh, but uh, something quite sudden and tragic happens. President Bartlett, he's the main character, he's the president, and uh, his, his secretary dies in a car accident. It's sudden, it's, sudden, it's shocking. And uh, the president had known her for a very long time, uh, since his high school days. So she wasn't just some employee of his, uh, she was a dear family friend. And her death, it gives rise to this powerful scene where President Bartlett begins to just hurl abuse upon God. And uh, he stands alone in this national cathedral in Washington. It's this very impressive man-made building. And uh, the security guards stand on the outside and he's in this building all by himself. And he starts talking to God. He has this real great crisis of faith. And uh, as he reflects on what's just happened, this, this dear family friend has died. And as he reflects on the difficulties of his life as president and all the troubles they'd faced as him being president in the, in the last year or so, he begins accusing God. He, uh, he labels God as vindictive. He labels God as nasty. And then he says in Latin, uh, which I won't do because I can't speak Latin. I didn't go to one of those sort of schools. Uh, but he says in Latin, he says, am I to believe these things? All these difficulties of my life, am I to believe these things from a righteous God, from a just God, from a wise God? And then he says, to hell with you, God. And if all that wasn't enough already to finish off the scene, he he lights a cigarette. He has one puff and he flicks it on the floor and then he squashes it underfoot inside the cathedral as if to say, that's what I think of you, God, letting such difficulties happen. And if you've seen it, it's a very powerful scene. It's very well done. It's very well scripted, but it's completely wrong. 
Uh, as are many of the self-righteous and theological scenes in the West Wing. Don't get your righteousness or theology from the, uh, theology from the West Wing. It's, it's very off. But it's completely wrong because the whole scene fails to understand the God of the Bible. And it fails to understand who our God is and how he's acted in history and that actually our God is faithful. And sadly, many in our world, and even more sadly, some Christians, they have this kind of West Wing understanding of our God. When things don't go well, when uh, people look around at the circumstances of their lives and they see difficulty in their life, they accuse God. Or they reject God, or they reason if things are hard and God is good, then, well, God can't exist. You know, am I to believe these difficulties from a God who's righteous and just and wise can't be true? He must be fake, or he must be a bad God. But in our psalm today, the psalmist teaches us what the godly response to difficulty looks like. And he teaches us what the response of someone who knows the God of the Bible looks like when stuff is hard when there's difficulty and there's no doubt as we'll see that the psalmist here in this psalm is in a state of great sorrow Uh, he's not some armchair expert he's not kind of talking about suffering as if he doesn't really know it as if the only difficulties in his life consists of you know what kind of color bathroom tile do i need to pick no no the psalmist here looks around at his own life and it's depressing he's depressed it's hard And yet the whole time, he never rejects God in this psalm. And what's so lovely about this psalm is that even though the psalmist never rejects his God, that doesn't stop him bringing his questions to God. So if you have a quick look at verse 2, verse 2, he says, when can I come and appear before God? He he feels distant from God. Or verse 5, he says, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Or verse 9, glance down at verse 9. He says, why have you forgotten me, God? And why must I go about in sorrow? Why, why, why? You see, this is a very honest psalm that asks very honest questions. But the whole time, it models a very godly response, a faithful response, a response of someone who knows the God of the Bible. But uh, a few things to note before we jump in. Uh, the first is, is if, uh, if you look right at the top of the psalm, right under where it says Psalm 42, you'll see that this is a, son, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And uh, in a nutshell, the sons of Korah, they were responsible for the temple music in the Old Testament. So think Old Testament temple, and they were responsible for the music in the temple. That was their job. That was their tradition. And uh, Psalms 42 to 49, they're kind of together. They're all these Psalms of Korah. They're part of that tradition. And while these Psalms, as you read them, they sound quite individualistic, but they're probably meant to be understood corporately as well. So what I mean is, as we read the Psalm, it says, I and my, and this is my experience. But the experience described in the Psalm is probably the similar experience of all of Israel. So it's not just one isolated person and how they feel. It's their experience of what everyone is feeling. It's that kind of psalm. These psalms are corporate, not just individual. Uh, The second thing to note is that this psalm is a mascal. Again, it says it at the top. It's a mascal, which again, in a nutshell, means a psalm of instruction. So this is a psalm containing wisdom. And so to listen to this psalm is to hear wise instruction. That's what it is to us, wise instruction for God's people. 
And we don't have the time, but Psalm 42 and 43, they go together. So again, if you look at your uh, titles in your Bible, you'll see there's no heading for Psalm 43. It just says Psalm 43. And, uh, and it has, there's very similar language between the two. There's a chorus that goes between the two. And so they kind of go together. We don't have time to look at both of them. But what I'll say in the sermon takes both the Psalms into account. Uh, but the Psalms together, that is the wise instruction. They go together. But the third and final thing to know, and probably the most important thing for us, is the situation behind this psalm. Uh, what was going on as this psalm was written? And usually it's notoriously difficult to work out when a particular psalm was written or what particular situation it was written in. It's really hard to know. Um, most of the psalms don't tell us. Uh, some of them do. Psalm 51, it's the famous psalm of uh, David when uh, the prophet Nathan confronts him about his sin against Bathsheba and how that led to murder. And uh, David tells us, he writes that psalm in light of that. But most psalms don't tell us. However, I think this psalm gives us enough clues to give us an idea about the situation Israel is in. And we can't be sure of the exact time, but whatever time it is, this is a time when Israel was without the temple. This is a time where they didn't have the place of worship to go and worship God, and God's presence wasn't with them in the temple. And perhaps even they were outside of their own land, in exile in Babylon, or, or, uh, or just about to go into exile into Babylon. And so if that's the case, when the psalmist... And when Israel looked around at the circumstances of their lives and how life was going for them, well, nothing seemed as it was meant to be. If you were an Israelite, you had a temple. If you were an Israelite, you, you lived in the land of Israel. And here it seems there's no temple. And because there's no temple, there's no presence of God with them in the temple. So there's no worship, there's no sacrifice, and again, most probably no land. And Israel, without those things, it's kind of like, you know, Michael Jordan without a basketball or Tiger Woods without a golf club or uh, Phil Colgan. I was going to say Phil Colgan without a polo shirt, but Phil got a new shirt for Christmas and it's a button up and I got a polo shirt for Christmas and I'm not wearing a button up. So the world's upside down, but it's COVID. So we all understand. But you see, Israel, they've lost their reason to exist as the people of God. No temple, no land. And even more so for the psalmist, because remember, he's a son of Korah. He's part of that tradition. And his job, so to speak, was all about temple music. And there's no temple. So th those are the things uh, we need to keep in mind as we read this psalm. That seems to be the situation behind it. So first point for today, verses 1 to 4, longing for God. Let's look at the detail. Verse 1, let me read. As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? And uh, if you've been around church long enough, you might remember the very old hymn, As the Deer Pants for Water. Who remembers that hymn? Put your hand up. I want to see nice and high. Okay, a few of the younger people. Cool, very good. Uh, if you've been around a really long time, I'm not going to guess your age, you might remember the old school version, which was, As the Deer Panteth and Longeth for Water. And uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, I was in my late teens. I was at St. Cuthbert's. It's a church uh, basically across the railway. And one of the first Sundays I turned up for church, they were singing this song about the deer pantingeth and longeth for water. And I thought, these people are crazy. Why are they singing about some animal longing for water? This is, what am I doing? Uh, but the imagery, it's quite simple, isn't it? It's a simple imagery. 
the D, the, the animal that, that hasn't drunk for days and is dehydrated and parched, longs for water. Without it, they die. And this is how the psalmist feels about God. He longs for God. He asks, when can I come and appear before him? Because remember, no temple, no presence of God, no coming before him. And as if uh, the feeling of being without God wasn't bad enough already, look at verse 3. Because his enemies taunt him, verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? And as the psalmist is mocked and as he sheds his tears, all he can do is remember the good old days. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. And so all he can do is remember what temple worship was like. He remembers what it was to be in the presence of God with all the joy and all the shouting. And you can imagine the psalmist being quite comforted by that memory, but also quite depressed by it. He, he can't experience that anymore. But at this point, uh, we need to be careful in how we read this psalm as New Testament believers. Because if this psalm is written while Israel were in Babylon, in exile, which I think it was, then God's temple uh, and God's presence removed from them and the temple removed from Israel was for a reason. It was because of their sin. It was because of their idolatry. That's the reason why Israel went into exile. That's why Babylon came and, and destroyed the temple of God in Israel. It was an act of God's judgment over Israel. And so what the psalmist is expressing here, it's not just this kind of inward feeling. It's not as though he's just saying, I feel that God's distant to me at the moment. I don't feel his presence. No, no, God was being distant. You see, God had left their presence from the temple. And that is what the psalmist here is mourning and experiencing. But that's not the same for us today. See, this is where we need to be careful as we read as New Testament believers. You see, for us who belong to Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples, Matthew 28, he says, I'm with you always, is what Jesus says to his disciples. I'm with you always to the end of the age. How? Well, God is no longer present in some man-made, impressive-looking building, but he dwells in us by his spirit. And so Jesus can say to his disciples, and again to us as followers of him, John 14, 15, Jesus says, I will give you the Holy Spirit and he will be with you forever. Forever. See, please don't miss how extraordinary and amazing that is. Because here, Israel in the Old Testament, they always longed for God's presence in this way. And particularly here, the psalmist, he, he longs to stand before God's temple, to be in his presence. But for the believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, for us who trust him, God dwells in us. That's incredible. God dwelling in us. And that means if ever we feel like God is distant... Now, if ever our emotions take over and try to, to deceive us in telling us, you know, God has abandoned you. That's why you don't feel God's presence. He's abandoned you. That's rubbish. That's a lie of the devil. That's a lie of Satan. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you trust in him, he is with you always by his spirit forever. And the psalmist here, he didn't have that kind of confidence. And even the great King David didn't have that kind of confidence. 
Uh, I often use Psalm 51, the famous Psalm of David, uh, when I pray prayers of confession in my morning time when I, when I have uh, prayer. And uh, there's this line in Psalm 51, and you might remember it. And, and David says this, he prays this to God in Psalm 51. He says to God, do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But that's never our prayer. You see, our prayer is, thank you that Jesus died for my sins. Thank you that I am forgiven in him. I praise you, God, that you are always with me by your spirit. But there is something we should learn from this part of the psalm as we, as we start in it. You see, there is consequence for sin. And I think that's part of what the psalmist, uh, it's definitely what the psalmist is experiencing here. You see, the psalmist looked around at, at the difficulties of his life and the circumstances of his life and that of Israel being outside of their land and the temple gone. And all that was a result of God's judgment. It was consequence of sin. And who knows if the psalmist himself had participated in that idolatry that, that caused Israel to be judged by God or if he was one of the faithful remnant. Uh, probably the latter. He was probably one of the faithful guys. But regardless, he was experiencing the consequences of Israel's sin. He was living the consequence of sin. And while for us and for, for all people, there's no sin that's beyond forgiveness for the believer of Jesus Christ, there are consequences. There are consequences for sin. Uh, two weeks ago, I, uh, I preached at a small conference, and I was asked during the Q&A time, uh, if a particularly well-known American church leader, and uh, this had been over social media, I was asked if this uh, well-known American preacher, uh, church leader, who, gr- who grossly sinned, I was asked, was he, is he still saved? That was the question. Uh, and I said at the time, I said, look, I don't know. I don't know if, if he was a fake, uh, if he was a fraud uh, the whole time, if he led this church, but it was all a lie. Well, probably not. No, he's not converted. But no sin is beyond forgiveness. If you trust in the Lord Jesus and ask for forgiveness, well, only God knows if he truly trusts in Jesus or not. But I said, wow, the consequences of that man's sin upon his own life, because it was all over social media, and the consequences of that man's sin upon the church he led, well, that resulted in all sorts of hardships, all sorts of difficulties. And if you were a faithful member of that man's church, I'm sure you'd feel a little bit like the psalmist here. You know, I look around at the circumstance of my church and I think, well, where is God? Why do I feel like God's abandoned our church? Because this sin has affected all of us. And it feels as if God is distant. And that kind of feeling can cripple the follower of God. That feeling that that God might have abandoned us. And that kind of feeling can happen in lots of different circumstances. You see, we live in a world that's affected by sin, by your sin, by my sin, by other people's sin, by the fallen nature of creation itself. There will always be difficulty and hardship because this world is under sin and judgment. And when we feel those effects of sin and judgment in a particularly acute way, well, sometimes our, mo- our emotions and our feelings can take over and we, we can begin to wonder, well, is God actually for us? Because it doesn't feel like it. Does he actually care? Has he abandoned us? Is he God? Does he truly reign? And in those times, it's the next verse that we must remember. So you have a look at verse 5, and it's the chorus of this psalm. Verse 5. 
Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. And again, what I love about this psalm is the way it honestly brings its questions. Why? Why? Why do I feel this way? And the Bible is full of these kinds of laments. It actually invites them. Uh, in morning church, like I said, as I, as I began, uh, we looked at Psalm 25. And in Psalm 25, the, the, kind of the main point of it is when life gets hard and when circumstances overwhelm, the first thing the Christian does is bring your hardship to prayer to God. You bring it to God in prayer. And we can do that. And we can ask why. And we can cry why. And that's what the psalmist does here in his son. He's low. He's depressed. He's, he's conflicted within himself. And he brings it to God. And yet he does it with his sure and certain hope. You see, have a look again at verse 5. It's the second half of verse 5 that we must learn. Because the psalmist is depressed and he's low and he sees difficulties. And instead of letting his emotions dictate, he dictates to himself. And he says, put your hope in God. I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. And brothers and sisters, that is what we must remember during those low times of our lives. And if they haven't come, they will come. We need to talk to ourselves of our God. We need to dictate to ourselves what he's like, who he is, how he loves us powerfully in Jesus, his son, to save us. You see, emotions, they are a good gift from God. Don't hear me wrong. Emotions are a good thing. But like all human nature, they are fallen. And emotions can become irrational emotions that lie to us and deceive us and cause us to reject and accuse, even mock God. But the believer in those times remembers who God is, that he's trustworthy, that he always keeps his promises, and that person then puts their hope in him. And that is the point of this psalm. During those difficult times of life, should they come and then go, or should they be around throughout your entire life? Put your hope in God, for he is Savior and he is God. And that's not to say uh, as soon as you do, you know, suddenly you'll magically feel better or magically your life will get better. That is not the promise of Scripture. And that doesn't happen in this psalm. You see, this is one of those few psalms that stays low, that in the midst of the continued depression and turmoil, that the encouragement of the psalm is, well, in those times, continue to hope. Hope in God. Trust Him. And perhaps you've heard of Charles Spurgeon. He was a very famous uh, preacher in England in the 1800s. And he was a faithful man, a devout man of God, gave his life to serving God as much as he could. But he struggled massively with depression throughout his life. Uh, what I assume we'd call today clinical depression. And uh, this is what he once said in a sermon. He preached this once. He said, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgression. See, that is a man, that is a person, that is a believer who did not let his emotions and his feelings dictate, but he dictated to himself about the love of God in Jesus. 
And in our world that statistically seems to be getting more depressed, using that that term quite broadly, there is clinical depression, but broadly it seems our world is, is getting more depressed, finding life harder. In all that, what a hope that we have in our God. What an assurance that no matter what the earthly circumstance might come your way, and it might stay with you the rest of your life, God is still Savior. He's still God and powerful to save. And that's why the psalmist praises him still. Uh, But much more briefly, uh, points two and three. Point two, the faithful love of God. And again, there's, there's no doubt as you read on through the psalm that the psalmist is, is really feeling the difficulty of this life. So look at verse 6. Verse 6, he says, I'm deeply depressed. Or verse 7, look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. And so you get this image of being overwhelmed and, and drowning in all that's going on in the psalmist's life. Uh, we might say, you know, I'm in the deep end or I'm struggling or I'm overwhelmed. I'm treading water. But again, the psalmist remembers his God. So have a look at verse 6. Verse 6, he mentions the land of Jordan and Mount Hermon. And I think he does that because there the psalmist is remembering those times when Israel first came to their land. When God acted powerfully against wicked nations and against their enemies to bring, uh, to, to basically get rid of them and to bring them into their land. And it's pertinent for Israel now because if they're in exile, they're under the oppression of a wicked nation. They're looking forward to coming back to their land and God acting in that way again. But it's verse 8 that shows the great sense of hope. Look at verse 8. The psalmist writes, The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. And so again, you have the psalmist reminding himself, talking to himself about God. And he remembers that God is faithful, that he keeps his promise, that he's trustworthy because he's seen God keep his promises. So it's, it's only the right thing to do to see him as trustworthy. Uh, I remember when, my, uh, when I was a kid that my dad promised to take me to Parramatta Speedway. Uh, does anyone remember the old ads on TV about Parramatta Speedway? Again, just put your hand up high so I know how old I'm getting. Not many. Wow. There you go. There you go. Rob remembers, and he's older than me. So, uh, the, the ad was awesome. I was probably about 10 at the time, and it was these like sprint cars kind of flying across the screen, and it was really loud, and there was dirt kind of flying everywhere on this TV ad. And then it was the narrator, you know, this is old, so bear with me, but the narrator would say, it's a Parramatta Raceway, be there. And it was like this, like, Ugh, this real kind of man grunt. And, and that was it for me. I was a hyped up 10-year-old thinking, that's awesome. I'm going, and I'd nag my dad, 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 take me, take me. Dad said, yes, I promise, I promise. And every time the ad, the ad came on i said to dad take me said yeah i'll take you i'll take you and here i stand over a quarter of a century later still waiting and scarred by the lies of my father Uh, parents beware of well-intended promises but you see that's not the god of the bible that's not him that's not our god our god isn't some well-meaning human father who makes good promises but can't actually keep them at times No, no, this is a God who shows himself to be faithful and trustworthy over and over and over again. If you don't believe me, read your Bible. Over and over again, God says something and he does it. And nowhere more powerfully than in Jesus, his son. You see, trust his faithful love. That's what the psalmist does. He remembers God's faithful love. 
Which leads to our last point, point three, God as rock. And while uh, the last verses of this psalm are words of, of just utter despair and sorrow, they're, they're heavy words. But just notice how the, psalm, the psalmist begins these last words. Because he begins by calling God his rock. So look from verse 9. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, where is your God? And then our chorus, verse 11, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. And as you get to the end of the psalm, it's very clear that the psalmist is still low. He's feeling the pressure of being in exile and away from the presence of God and, and whatever other oppression he was feeling from the, the enemy. But in all that, God is still his rock. And you have this imagery of verse 7 of the sea and chaos and waves, and it's contrasted to God here as rock. God is the immovable and constant stronghold amidst those, those breakers and billows of this fallen world. And we don't know if the psalmist ever left his lowly state. We don't know. Maybe he never got to stand again before the presence of God at the temple. We don't know. But even if he did, that was only ever temporary. You see, the psalmist's hope in this psalm is actually our hope. It's the picture we've already seen in Revelation chapter 7 from last year. And I'll finish with this. Uh, let me remind you, Revelation 7, it's up on the screen. It says this. Then one of the elders asked me, John, who are these people robed in white and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And remember, in Revelation, the tribulation is the difficulties of this life. It's all of this life under sin and judgment. These are the ones coming out of that great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I hope you can see how Revelation 7 beautifully answers the psalmist's psalm, the psalmist's prayer. You see, no longer does the psalmist need to thirst for the presence of God because he will be in God's sanctuary, joyfully serving day and night for all eternity, guided to springs of living water, never to thirst again. And no longer will the psalmist have his tears as his food, as we read in the psalm, because God will wipe away every tear. And you see, that is our hope. That is our future. Yes, Jesus is with us now until the end of the age, but our world is a world of tribulation and difficulty, and so we too look forward to that picture. We put our hope in God. You see, I don't know if you're currently going through a low point in your life. Maybe you are. Uh, if you are, please uh, talk to me about it or talk to a brother or sister in Christ who you love and trust and get them to pray with you. Uh, if you're not going through a hard time in your life at the moment, chances are one day you will. 
Maybe you can think of a time that you did in the past and you've come through it for now. But let us remember where our hope lies. You see, our hope is in a faithful God who is God and who is Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter how low we might feel at times, we need to talk to ourselves and we need to talk to each other and remind one another that our hope in God is never misplaced. It's not foolish. Let people mock us. It's not foolish. You see, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the trustworthy, promise-keeping God who has saved us in Jesus, your Son, and who dwells in us by your Spirit. And Father, we pray that when we do go through those low and depressive times of life, that our emotions will never deceive us to thinking that you are distant, to thinking that you don't care. Lord, in those times, help us to talk to ourselves and talk to each other of the great news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, to put our hope in you always. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.